It's mid-July, and we're in the old city of Jerusalem. We're here as members of Notre Dame's University Communications team, learning about the university's evolving presence in the Holy Land. On this day, we're standing outside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the site venerated as the place of Jesus Christ's crucifixion and burial. We quite literally landed at Tel Aviv's Ben-Gurion Airport about three hours prior, and that fact is adding to the surreal feeling of being here. The bells are signaling a changing of the guard of sorts. The sepulcher is controlled by five different Christian sects, with varying rules for who oversees specific parts of the church. The bells signify it's time for one group to take its watch. And here they come, all dressed in black, long gray beards. The bells are incredibly loud, though that helps somewhat with the jet lag. And frankly, the sound of bells is preferable to some other sounds for which the sepulchre has become known. This is footage taken in 2009 during a brawl inside the church. The video is pretty incredible. You see clergy of different stripes throwing haymakers at each other, some landing square in the face. The cause for the uprising? Apparently, a dispute over whether the Greek Orthodox would allow the Armenians a place inside the shrine of Jesus' tomb during the Armenians' feast day. Seven years prior, another fight broke out, and the cause of this one is either comical or sad, depending on your perspective. A monk from the Coptic Church of Egypt was sitting on the roof of the church, and a symbolic gesture to stake their claim to that particular part. You see, it's controlled by the Ethiopian Orthodox. Well, on this particularly hot day, the monk moved his chair about a foot or so into the shade, into Ethiopian space. Things unraveled from there. In the end, 11 holy men were sent to the hospital, one of them unconscious. This is a part of the world where inches are contested, and obviously not just among Christians. And yet Notre Dame operates 36 acres here. It has for more than 50 years. We'd like to tell you how that happened, and how the university is planning for the next 50. I'm Andy Fuller, and you're listening to Notre Dame Stories' Tantour, Hill in the Holy Land. On February 11, 1991, Father Ted Hesburgh sat down for an interview with journalist and C-SPAN founder Brian Lamb. The occasion was the publication of Father Ted's autobiography, God, Country, Notre Dame. Father Ted was Notre Dame president for 35 years. He's responsible for making Notre Dame what it is today in many ways. Very early on in the conversation, the subject of conflict in the Holy Land comes up. Now, it's 1991, so it's impossible to know exactly what Lamb is referencing here, 
or if he's just making a broad statement. But nonetheless, Father Ted's answer and the ensuing dialogue are interesting. And I just have a need to ask you this question. Um, If there's a God, why all the conflict, why all the war, why all the violence? Get even worse one, why so many of it religious-based? No, I think um, this is, you know, what in theology we call the problem of evil. Uh, God did a great thing for us, better than any creature we know on earth. Uh, He gave us intelligence and uh, freedom, and that's how we mimic or image him, by being intelligent, by being free. The only problem is the moment he made us free, we're free to be good or free to be evil, and too often we're evil. Uh, We have his grace if we ask for it. But the fact is that he can't have loving creatures if he doesn't make us free to love. Or if he makes us free to love, he's got to make us free to hate. And that's fundamentally what it gets down to. You can't have it both ways. Even God can't have it both ways. He can't be uh, free to do one thing and not free to do another. So if we're free to earn heaven, we're also free to to blow it. I suppose uh, it depends on which side you're on and how you look at it, whether you're evil or... Yeah, they can say that too, especially in the religious wars. They're all got God on their side, and none of them do. Have you been to Jerusalem? I have an institute in Jerusalem, which I built 25 years ago, called the Tantur. It's a, it's a place Paul VI asked me to build a place where Protestants, Catholics, Anglicans, and and uh, Orthodox Christians could get live together, pray together, work together. We try to see, to do, in a way, what Paul VI wanted. He wanted us to reproduce what happened during Vatican Council II, and all of about 200 theologians got together all over the world in Rome and spent the whole council there advising us on what we were doing. I have to say that Jerusalem is a place that really uh, catches you in the heart. It really catches you because it's it's a place that belongs to everybody. It belongs to Jews, it belongs to Christians, it belongs to Muslim. All three is a holy city. And it belongs to history and it belongs to scripture. It's a there's no place on earth like Jerusalem. When you walk in the church of the Holy Sepulchre, yeah, uh, well, it's all divided up. That's right. Oh, they're fighting over the Armenians and the cops and the Catholics and the Orthodox, and everybody's got a piece of the action, if you will. I hate to see that. I feel very uneasy with that, Brian, really do. How does that happen? I mean, how does that happen in the name of religion? It shouldn't. It's just that people think they own God or something. That's why we built this building called Tantor. It's right between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Actually a little closer to Bethlehem, but within the confines of Jerusalem. And we try to show there that Christians of all stripes can really spend time studying, living, playing, praying together, and and do it in a way that transcends the differences, if you will, because of their loyalty to the Lord. But there's been all too little of that. There's something very Hesburgh-like about that exchange, namely a sort of understated relaying of the facts. Obviously, they weren't there to talk about the founding of Tantur itself. Nevertheless, it's a fascinating story to tell. It involves religion, politics, war, and just a little bit of good fortune. First, a little backstory. Before Pope Paul VI, Pope John XXIII set in motion the wheels of Vatican II. It's difficult to overstate just how novel this decree was. 
Pope John XXIII died before seeing the council through, but his successor, Pope Paul VI, took up the mission. As the council drew to a close, there was an increasing interest to have something that memorialized the bridges that had been built, a place where people from all different traditions could continue the work of Christian dialogue and encounter and study. The word for this sort of thing is ecumenism. The Pope liked the idea, but the ideal location for such a center wasn't immediately clear until another landmark event, the Pope's trip to Jerusalem in January 1964. Here, he met and embraced Patriarch Athenagoras of Constantinople. It was the first encounter between East and West in centuries. It would lead not only to the lifting of mutual excommunication, but would also cause Jerusalem to emerge as the ideal location for the proposed center. One more bit of backstory you should know. Before he became Pope Paul VI, the man known as Cardinal Montini spoke at Notre Dame's baccalaureate mass in 1960 at the invitation of Father Hesburgh. Over the course of 1964, correspondence between the Pope and Father Hesburgh discussed how the center would come together. To put the timing in context, the Civil Rights Act was signed in July of that year in the United States. Father Ted is said to be the architect of that piece of legislation, famously bringing together the various factions over bourbon and fishing to forge a landmark victory for equality. In January of 1965, Pope Paul VI asked Father Ted to take on another bridge-building endeavor. In a letter, he formally requested that Father Ted take up what was known as the Jerusalem Project at the time. Here's Angie Appleby Purcell, the Senior Director of Internationalization at Notre Dame International. She was Interim Director of Tantour for about a year. Um, it was established in a, with a goal of, of um, research, of scholarship, of academic life, with the values of, um, of a faith-based ecumenical institute where common prayer, common spiritual life, community were also extremely important to the identity. But at the lead of that identity from the beginning has always been um, forwarding the academic efforts and initiatives of scholars of people in the field of ecumenism. If you read the, the documents, um, very clear multiple times that this was to be a university effort. This was not an ecclesial institution as we would understand it. There's someone else I want you to meet, Father Pat Gaffney, who's an emeritus anthropology professor at Notre Dame and is currently working at Notre Dame University, Bangladesh, which is also founded by the Congregation of Holy Cross, but has no other formal tie to the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. All of which is to say, we interviewed him via Zoom teleconference. Father Gaffney has arguably researched Tantur more than any other person. Much of the historical information for this series and the accompanying stories on the web is rooted in Father Gaffney's work. We asked him to provide some context for the original charge of the project. Here's what I think Hesburgh really thought. Well, he thought, well, we will get world-class theologians, and these guys are magnets, and we'll get a dozen people together, and we'll put together a study agenda for a year, and people will be given different aspects allocated by the leader of the project. They'll work on these papers, uh, we'll have four or five months, we'll have ongoing reports, and then 
we'll put this together at the end and we'll solve this problem. Then we'll move on to the next. Purgatory. Forging the academic and programmatic course of the Institute was no small task. It required a lot of travel, for one thing. In his autobiography, Father Ted estimated he would travel more than 250,000 miles for the Jerusalem Project. But the what wasn't the only issue. There were equally urgent issues of the where and the how. The Institute didn't have a location yet, much less a building. And it needed money, a considerable amount for the time. Father Ted secured an initial gift from I.A. O'Shaughnessy, for whom O'Shaughnessy Hall on campus is named, to help get the Institute off the ground. At that time, of course, um, Jerusalem was still divided between Jordan and Israel. And they weren't sure where they were going to build it. So there's the whole process of finding a site. And again, there's several suggestions and a little bit of skullduggery. There were a couple of people who had their eye on property that their brother owned and stuff like that. <laughs> but they finally isolated the right place for themselves, about halfway between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. That's where the place is now. And um, they proceeded to purchase that, which was again a bit tricky. Uh, that was owned by the Knights of Malta. They no longer had a presence there, but they still own the property. Knights of Malta had used that as something like a hospital during the First World War. The land in question was in Jordan, about 10 kilometers south of Jerusalem's old city. It was a hill known as Tantur, which means peak or hilltop in Arabic. And when Father Gaffney says the Knights of Malta owned the property, it's not like this was a recent purchase. The Knights were given the property way back during the First Crusade. But maybe the fact that the land was owned by a Catholic order was fortuitous. In an interview in 2009, Father Ted said he reminded the Pope that he was the Holy Father. And maybe he should just tell the Knights that he wanted the land. Turns out being the Pope has advantages. An agreement was struck. The Knights would keep about 17 acres, and the Vatican would purchase the remaining 36 and lease the land to Notre Dame at the symbolic cost of $1 a year. Next, Father Ted asked Frank Montana, head of the Department of Architecture at Notre Dame, to design the building. Permits, easements, all the particulars were squared away with the nation of Jordan. It was starting to come together. Two years of planning and negotiating and fundraising had bared fruit. Finally, it was time for groundbreaking. It was June 4th, 1967. Historians will recall what took place on June 5th. War in the Middle East. Israeli forces drive spearheads across the Sinai Peninsula, west to the Suez Canal, south to the entrance of the Gulf of Aqaba, breaking the blockade, capturing the west bank of the Jordan River, and occupying the old city of Jerusalem. Whatever you think about war, it rarely answers all the questions it portends. And in the case of the Six-Day War, it multiplies them. The legacy of the Six-Day War defines so much of the region today, most notably in the area around Jerusalem, and 
the hill called Tantur. On June 4th, the Ecumenical Institute broke ground in Jordan. By June 10th, the land was under Israeli control. The massive amount of legal red tape the project waded through to gain Jordanian approval was now essentially for naught. In the hours after the shooting stopped, Father Ted moved to contact someone who, it just so happens, he had invited to speak on campus a few years prior. I think the interesting thing that for a historian or for a person trying to summarize a lot of the detail is that Father Hesburgh, right after the war ended, contacted uh, Abba Aben, who was then the ambassador to the United States and the ambassador to the United Nations. And Abba Aben, very early, I mean, before a lot of investigation, before it was all settled, it wasn't clear what the future of the West Bank was. I mean, now we look back and it looks like Israel was always going to hang on to it. But that wasn't clear right after 67. And um, Abba Aben um, gave Hesper guarantees that Contour would go forward. So once that was known, they moved forward. There were many other details, but it could now happen because largely at the highest level, um, Israel agreed to let it happen. And there's a whole correspondence between Abba Eben and Hesper about who he had to work with to make that happen. But in those days, I mean, Israel was less, I'd say, consolidated as a country. There were several founding figures, Abba Eben, one of them, who just had big elbows and they could make things happen in Israel because they knew everybody and they knew this was best and didn't have to go through the Knesset or the normal bureaucracy. Whether it was big elbows or divine intervention or both, Tantur was moving forward again. By December 1967, the lease was signed and construction was starting. The next few years were typified by construction delays and other administrative fits and starts. Success, as they say, is seldom a straight line. But there was one episode that caused Father Hesburgh to write a letter that, according to Father Gaffney, is the second most important piece of literature relating to Tantur, after the Pope's letter of instruction to Father Ted. You see, as the project gained momentum, it gained the attention from people all over the world. The New York Times and Francis La Monde each wrote front-page stories about Tantour and its aims. But sometimes big projects draw the wrong kind of attention. There was a force of nature in the Vatican at the time called Monsignor Benelli. Many people referred to him as second-in-command to the Pope, though it may be this was an idea that he himself began to circulate. As Tantour started to emerge as a major endeavor, Monsignor Benelli sought to bring it under his purview. There are nearly two years' worth of letters between he and Father Ted, in which Benelli inquires of this and that and makes demands, stuff that very clearly had the intent of claiming territory. Eventually, Father Ted had enough. He decided it was time to clear the air. Here's a portion of the letter he wrote to Benelli, with the clear intent of having it shared far and wide in Rome. I am sure you will understand my position of having to keep faith with those to whom I have given my word regarding the project, and the complete impossibility of my continuing to be associated with the project if it is understood any differently, particularly as we embark upon this search for external support approximating $6 million. In other words, 
Keep it up, Monsignor, and then explain to the Holy Father why I'm not a part of this anymore. Benelli relented. Father Ted would see it through to the end, and the Tantur Ecumenical Institute would hold its opening celebration in September 1972. Today, it's called the University of Notre Dame at Tantur, a title that encompasses the Ecumenical Institute and the Jerusalem Global Gateway, opened by Notre Dame International in 2014. Names change, but the original charter is still alive and well. Father Jerry Olinger is Notre Dame's Vice President for Mission Engagement and Church Affairs. Tantur really is one of the most significant ways that we partner with the Vatican. Um, I think both ecumenical conversation, so conversation among uh, Christian communions, as well as interfaith conversations are very important to Pope Francis and to the Vatican, as well as to Notre Dame. So I think it's a natural connection. And because of what happens at Tantor, because of um, the proximity of um, Tantor to so many holy sites for Christians, for our Jewish brothers and sisters, and for our Muslim brothers and sisters, um, there's something very unique about the work that we're able to do there. I take uh, encouragement and inspiration from the, that early mandate in 2019 when we are renewing for another 50 years who we are, what's our identity. So when we talk about thinking how we name ourselves, yes, we are the Tantor Ecumenical Institute, but we are a university engaging and forwarding scholarship, um, research, inquiry on all levels. You know, Father Ted famously right. says, you know, um, the university is where the church does its thinking. And that's exactly right. And this is a prime example of how that was playing itself out mm -hmm. and still does. You know, I've been there enough now that um, I there's a variety of feelings. One, uh, you walk up the big road. You know, it's a hill. Tantor in Arabic is hill or peak. So we, walk, we, we, we ride up or walk up the, the windy road up to the top, and you come into the courtyard through this, this, this castle-like archway. But you walk through, and you can't help but feel you're in this sacred but historic place. Um, that's why the Holy Land and having our students there is different than where they are in other gateways, because you, you immediately feel but also are humbled by, also inspired, also feel a deep responsibility that you are in this space, that you have, uh, that you're pretty um, confident. Prophets, um, our Lord and Savior, uh, the Mother of God, um, walked on, and and uh, it gives you chills. Tantur is indeed located amid a number of significant pilgrimage sites. Which begs the question, what was at Tantur before? Next time on Tantur, Hill in the Holy Land, we join Notre Dame students as they search for clues about Tantur's ancient past. It should get interesting if we go about this far down. And as they dig at the site of one of the greatest battles of the Bible, best known one is in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17 when David meets Goliath. And we find the story lives on 
sometimes in very odd ways. I cut off his head as the slow of Victoria! That's next time on Tantula, Hill in the Holy Land.